0: Hi, it's Mike Morris. Welcome to another episode of Open Mike. I'm really glad you're here. We have a really interesting episode today, and I'm going to read the bio. I usually make up the bio as I go along uh, without notes, but this is a little bit outside of the genre we usually do, but I think it's fascinating, and I'm really excited that this guest is with us. As you know, on the morning of September 11th, my birthday, 2001, 19 years ago, 19 Al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked four commercial passenger jet airliners, intentionally crashing two of them into the World Trade Center in New York City. The hijackers crashed a third airliner into the Pentagon, and the fourth plane crashed in a field in Pennsylvania. 3,000 victims and 19 hijackers died. Two of those planes during those attacks, used in those attacks, the, the two specific ones that hit the World Trade Center, both of those planes took off from Boston's Logan International Airport. I didn't actually remember that. And if you asked me that, I don't know if I would have known. The person in charge of Boston, Boston's Logan International Airport on that fateful day was Virginia Buckingham. She joins us to tell us about that day and about the aftermath and about an amazing book and articles she has written. So I'm really excited to welcome Virginia Buckingham to the show. You never know who you're going to see. Be one guy one on one my whole career. What you're going to hear. Got a lot of desperate people in the city. Or what they've got to say. When you can take people inside of a crime. That's what you're gonna hear on my podcast, Open Mic. Find it where you find your podcasts. Thank you, really
1: good to be here, Mike.
0: Thanks for taking some time out and being with us today. Um, You know, it's really interesting. I think that uh, 9-11 is one of those things that, you know, I hear the older generations talk about where were you when you found out about JFK dying. This is it for my lifetime or, you know, where were you when the OJ verdict came out? But 9-11 is way more important. And I think everybody remembers where they were on that day. I was in London, England celebrating my birthday. Tell me where you were, Miss Buckingham.
1: I was getting my two-year-old son off to daycare before driving into the airport to fly to Washington, D.C. I had a big meeting that day, kind of a crucial meeting with the FAA about a new runway project that we were fighting for at Logan. And it was a normal day, um, like every other morning, until it wasn't. And I think that's one of the things that we all share is that sense of our whole world being turned upside down in in a second. And I was in the car listening to the news on the radio, as I always did, and heard the report about the first plane, thought it was an accident, just like most people did at the time, and then was listening as the second plane flew in live and was reported um, from New York. And very shortly thereafter, I got a call from my office at Logan saying six words, which changed the world forever and certainly changed me forever. Two planes are off the radar.
0: Wow, I have chills reliving this story with you. Um, when did you realize for the first time that two of those planes, I mean, it, when they said those six words to you that a layperson like me doesn't fully understand, did you know that two planes that left Boston Logan were down or crashed or
1: We didn't know for sure for several hours. It was a very confusing morning with air traffic control all over the country um, Pulling planes down getting them down to the ground safely We were trying to track every plane that had left Logan that morning and we were given many conflicting reports um, from the, the FAA tower and um, And ultimately, though, um, we did learn about um, United 175 and American Flight 11. Um, We had folks that worked with us at Logan who were very um, close with the American Airlines and United Airlines ground staff. And they um, told us what they had learned, in some cases, from um, uh, flight attendants calling in from those planes um, to tell them what was happening.
0: So try to take us through the chaos of that day and... and I assume you never made it to Washington D.C., but you know, try to
1: take us through that day. You know, we raced um, into the airport um, from my home on the North Shore, and when I got there, I walked into my office, and the TV was on and I saw for the first time what I had heard on the radio, and there's nothing like seeing it. I know we all see it in our our minds, those that remember that day or were alive that day. Um, So I I watched the planes. I started making calls. Um, We opened an emergency um, operations center where we could coordinate the response across different public safety agencies, We opened a family assistance center, so families who feared that their loved ones um, were on one of the planes could come to the airport if they wanted to and receive information to the extent we had it, support from clergy, the American Red Cross, and others. And it was, you know, really a tsunami of um, decision making. You know, we had to close down the airport, secure all the planes that were on the ground so that they could be part of the investigation. We had to clear thousands of passengers out of the terminals. Um, and it was an intense, but focused response. You know, these folks that I had the privilege to lead at Logan were public safety and um, response professionals. And while we weren't prepared for anything like this um, they performed magnificently.
0: What was your title at uh, Boston Logan?
1: So I was um, CEO of the Massachusetts Port Authority which runs on um, the airport along with other smaller airports in the port of Boston.
0: So it's not, you're not, so okay. It's the, it's the airport authority. I, I know there's a lot of shipping there. Is it you also, were you also in charge of the shipping? Yes. Wow. So that's a, I mean, that's a, it's a massive job.
1: It was a massive job. Um, I had served as chief of staff to two successive um, Massachusetts governors, and one of them asked me to go over and lead the airport authority when that position became open, because it was the major kind of economic engine of the New England area. And securing things like that new, new runway that would help alleviate delays that were hampering New England's economy, securing direct shipping from China to the port of Boston. Those were among the things that I um, was working on um, when this happened.
0: And at some point in time after 9-11 happened, you know, you were, there was some blame Coming to the top, like, how did you let these hijackers, I think there was 10 hijackers that came through Boston Logan that day. Is that right?
1: Yes. Two of them flew in from Portland, Maine into Logan, but ultimately all boarded those two planes at Logan. So
0: so 10 uh, men got through your security. Did they have weapons on them?
1: So you know the 9 eleven commission looked exhaustively at how this could have happened, but you're correct very quickly after um, the attacks, the questions became quite intense about was it something specific about Logan Airport um, that allowed this to happen, which made you know little logical sense given that it had happened at two other major airports at the exact same time with two other airliners. But people were afraid and they were angry. And I became an easy answer um, to a very complicated question. You know, I was a political appointee at the head of the authority. Um, I was, you know, younger, a woman, all, all of those factors. And mostly I just think it was people looking for an easy answer and politicians looking for an easy answer. Um, the checkpoints themselves at that time, you might remember, were overseen by the airlines and um, security companies um, under the H.S. Um, of the FAA. Um, the airport operator was not in charge of those, but I don't think that matters either. These hijackers carried small knives um, through through the checkpoints that weren't detected and some even say if they were detected, they'd be given back to them because they were so small um, and those were allowed at the time. And no one contemplated that they were going to take over the airliners themselves and use them as weapons. That was beyond anyone's Um, imagination, horrible imagination.
0: That's a good point. And listen, I'm 53. I was way alive when that happened. And of course, I remember time before TSA, but I don't, you know, I haven't really dissected this, that, that the airlines were in charge and they did hire private security to, to let people through. You're saying that they had small knives that may or may not have been uh, detected. If they were detected, maybe would have been given back to them. Um, was there anything that ever came out of it that they, that there are anything wrong with their passports or that any of that should have been detected before we get into the other stuff? I just don't remember.
1: I mean, if you, if you go through the the nine eleven commission report, which came out three years later, um, you know, there are all sorts of signs perhaps that would have in hindsight and it's always that hindsight that's perfect at some level of the CIA or the FBI or, um, you know, at some higher level, maybe put together, but that's again, applying perfect hindsight. Um, and it just was not anything that the system was set up to stop the system. The aviation security system was set up to deter bombs from being brought onto an airliner, um, not small knives.
0: And nobody contemplated before 2001 that anybody would ever try to use an, a massive airliner as a weapon.
1: No, no. And, you know, it it was two days before the first story appeared in the local Boston um, newspaper that I might be fired as a result. And from there, it became a a feeding frenzy, really, of um, questions and, you know, radio talk show hosts um, and TV cameras showing up at my front door and front page headlines and columns and editorials calling into question whether, you know, my position there was the reason this happened. And it became very clear to me when the governor at the time took me aside and said, you know, I know you don't, couldn't have done anything to stop this. I I know there's nothing um, that would have changed what happened, but you know how politics works and and that allows me to sleep at night. And it was a pretty, you know, raw and cynical way of looking at things. You know, I worked in politics um, for, for many years and I hope and believe that, Um, The governors I worked for would have risen to the occasion and seen this for what it was. Um, Anyway, I was forced to resign um, after a public poll that said, you know, almost 40 percent of the public thought I should be fired. Um, How many
0: days later was that?
1: Um, I was forced to resign six weeks later. So for those six weeks, we stayed focused and I did my best as I think leaders try to do to stay focused on the job in front of me and you know, bring in an Israeli security consultant to help us um, go beyond what the FAA was requiring for new security, which we didn't think was adequate um, and could you know, cooperate with the investigation and do our best to restore confidence in aviation. My book covers that, so for those interested in those early days in the aviation world on my watch is is an interesting read from that perspective, but more so on my watch is about rebuilding a broken life because I was very shattered, not just from being fired from you know a job in public service that I loved, but um, shortly after that I was sued personally for wrongful death. And there were only two people in the country, Sue, personally, no airline CEOs, you know, no one else um, was actually held to account like that. And that really shattered my heart and soul.
0: And we're going to get into all of that. Um, your book, you wrote a memoir called on my watch that came out April, 2020, chronicling the events of nine 11, your journey, uh, through those six weeks in the early days and, and how the last 19 years have, have turned out. Um, and so people can buy that on Amazon, I assume. And if there's any bookstores still around, they could probably go in there and find it there too?
1: Yes, they can order it through any of their local booksellers or find it on Amazon.
0: So just going back uh, you know, a little bit. So, after, so you're forced to resign six weeks later. And three years later, the commission comes out saying... What about the security at Boston and the security at the other two airports? Which, what were the other two airports?
1: Uh, Dulles and Newark.
0: Dulles and Newark. All right. So what did the commission say about the, about security?
1: You know, I testified before their investigators under oath and um, shared with them what I um, could about um before 9-11 and, and my thoughts for um, moving forward. And I asked them um, and I, I just said, if you find that Logan's security was no different than any other airport, please say so, not just for me, but for all of the men and women um, who work at Logan Airport um, and have carried this burden on their shoulders. And they did. So when when they came out, um, they had thousands of footnotes and the very first footnote to that lengthy report said just that, that Logan's, um, security at the only point that mattered, which was the checkpoints. That was no different than any other airports. What's interesting about that, though, is I thought that that would be such a huge relief. I thought it would lift the burden from my heart and soul. And it didn't, because I carried inside me all of those voices that said it was my fault, all those journalists who I respected and had worked with for so many years, all those political leaders, I I believed them more than I believed in myself. And that's part of my story in my book, as well as how I had to come um, to my own conclusion inside that it wasn't my fault and no external source, however um, official, was going to matter.
0: Yeah, well, I think we're learning in these days right now that you can't really put much stock into politics and politicians these days. Um, and their word, and I mean, I, I don't want to get into any of that right now. But I, I, I hear what you're saying. It's internal, and you weren't looking for external um, relief. I mean, you were, but it didn't help.
1: I was looking for it, but it. it- It never was going to help me. I looked for it for years. I wanted to be exonerated by the president of the United States. I wanted a governor to say it wasn't my fault. I wanted the front page of the paper to say it wasn't my fault. Um, And I thought that would help. And even if any of those things happened, it wouldn't have.
0: And fast forward 19 years, how do you feel today?
1: Content and peaceful, grateful. Um, My book is finding its way to people who are responding to it and getting help from it, which is kind of all all it can be, is if something bad happens, if you can do something good with it. um, That's a real gift, and people are getting strength from my story, and and that gives me a lot of um, peace.
0: I'm going to pull up um, a great Harvard Business Review article you wrote, which uh, talks about... um which is kind of a precursor to the book, which makes me want to buy your book, which I plan on doing when we get off uh, this podcast. Um, And it talks about your history and you come down to, um, you know, you talk about setbacks and you talk about, um, you know, it's encouraging for people who have setbacks that they think they can't overcome. And I just to share a quick bit of personal history. I uh, in 1995, Um, almost to the day of 9-11 on 9-21 was fired for my first job as a lawyer. And I too thought that I didn't know how to overcome it. Um, And I didn't know what was going to happen. And I didn't know what possibilities and I wanted to be exonerated because I knew I didn't do anything wrong. And, you know, you talk, you talk about, you know, taking your time, you have four points here, take your time, don't rush into something um, take a chance, which I thought was very, uh, smart as well, because you can't just, if you, if you, if something bad happens, you just can't go back to doing the same old thing, right? Redefine resilience, um, and pass it on. And, you know, sharing the wisdom that you've learned, which is what you're doing in your book. I wrote a book, fireproof that my listeners know about kind of doing the same thing we should probably swap books you and me yeah i will i'll, make, I'll send you a will send you a copy okay. and um uh we'll, we'll exchange addresses when we get off this um and so I, I i hear where you're coming from and i'm glad that 19 years later you're doing you're doing well um and I, I, wanna, I want to, I want to get back to some of the details, uh, what you've went through, but I also want to spend a few minutes reminding people and, you know, quite frankly, I didn't read the 9-11 commission report. I don't know many people who did. Um, I lived it. Um, I don't think about it as much as I should. I have visited the 9-11 memorial, which is pretty powerful. I'm sure you have, um, And so let's, let's just get, let's just get, go through some of the facts. Um, just to, just to lay out what happened that day for some of our younger listeners and viewers who, who weren't there. Um, and then we'll get more into the book. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So back then before TSA, um, when did the hijackers who came through Logan, when did they buy those tickets? And what method did they use to buy them?
1: Um, I don't know the method that they used, but um, the nine eleven commission report, which you referenced, kind of lays out the timeline. And it was sometime in late summer um, that they bought the actual... Tickets and actually, I start the book um, with kind of a TikTok of what I was working on and doing versus what the 9/11 Commission Report shows the hijackers doing, and it's kind of uh-huh. eerie because you know obviously I was going about my business and working on the priorities and raising. I had, as I mentioned, a two-year-old son. I was five weeks pregnant on 9/11 with my daughter um, and hadn't told anyone yet except my husband, and so I would I kind of contrast that airiness and how they were taking cross country flights. And there were records that we found later, um, of their, um, taking a car in and out of our garage at Logan. So clearly they were, you know, surveilling, um, the place, obviously no one knew that in advance. So all these, um, all the plans that they were making as we were innocently going about our lives.
0: And, and were any of them on any watch lists at that time?
1: Um, I don't know um, the answer to that. Um, I do know that two of them were on um, one of the airline's frequent flyer um, lists who could go to the club before boarding the airline. Um, so that's how natural and normal um, they made themselves as, as part of our, our society Um, which is really airy. You know, I came in contact with this um, gate agent at Portland where two of the hijackers for whatever their reasons were, boarded a plane that morning to Logan from Portland, Maine. And, you know, he, I don't know how he's doing now. I hope well, but he's really struggled and suffered because he let them board, but he had this gut sense there was something wrong with them because of how, Evil and angry, they appeared, but he couldn't do anything about it. What could you do? Stop wow. a man from traveling because of your gut instinct? That was never going to happen. Um, and that's it's that's
0: giving that, me chills. That's giving me that, weird it, chills.
1: It's that normalcy um, at the time that is just hard to wrap your arms around. And actually, I, I contacted that gate agent. His name is Michael Tui. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. Um, and we talked for over an hour because we both shared that same heartbreak of if only, if only we had known something or been able to do something. Um, and, you know, I know it haunted him for many years. It haunted me for many years.
0: Are we safer now than we were on September 11th, 2001 flying?
1: Yes, I mean, I have been out of the aviation industry for 19 years, so I'm not going to profess that I am an expert at what is happening now. Um, But absolutely, it it hasn't happened again um, for many, many reasons, um, including um, the changes of security. You know, I walked through... um, security checkpoints now when I travel a lot for work, and I say thank you to the TSA agents. I know a lot of people are irritated with the weight and the inconvenience, but I say thank you because they are there to keep us safe, and they remember every single day why they're there. Um, The cockpit doors, they're not open anymore. They're they're shut, and they won't open for anything, Um, and I think that's a big, big step forward. Um, Obviously, people can disagree about our foreign interventions, but disrupting um terrorists where they live before they get organized and come here has clearly made a difference, so now, yes we're safer
0: so wow that was, i mean the fact that you talked to that gate agent is is reverberating through my body, and uh the fact that he had a gut about that is and you're right i mean you he, he would have been profiling had he said that's right, you know You guys don't feel right to me.
1: Yeah, before that was even a thing we talked about, he he would have been in big trouble had he had stopped them.
0: Well, yeah, you could have put him in a room. You could have stripped him naked. All they had on them was a couple of knives. What was in their brain attacking a cockpit, uh, taking over the flying of a plane? I I don't remember ever. I mean, you were in charge of a massive uh, air set of airports and, and ports, you never saw a memo or somebody even suggest this may happen. Th- this is a, uh, something that we're worried about. I mean, nobody thought about it. It was, I mean, it was basically, and I, this is, I hate to use the word genius on their behalf. Cause that almost sounds like I'm admiring them. I'm not, but it was, they were smart. They,
1: they were evilly smart, evilly
0: uh, smart. Thank you. Evilly smart.
1: You know, so I, I had a memo sent to me, um, it's interesting you bring that up, um, in April of that year, um, which talked about in general, terrorist threats against airports for my security director, nothing actionable, nothing to do with, um, we were in the middle of a security um, audit, actually, top to bottom um, of, of, of Logan's, Logan Airport. But that memo haunted me too, because I, you know, would have done something had it been actionable, um, obviously, but the papers reported on it afterwards as, you know, yet another example of something that had been overlooked at Logan. You know, and if you, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a lot of reports that the president of the United States, President Bush, had received a memo um, titled Al Qaeda Poise to Attack in the United States in August of that year. And again, people said, Oh, that should have told him everything he needed to know. And it didn't tell him anything because it wasn't about this. It wasn't about flying airliners into into buildings. And, you know, people want to hold on to those reasons why it could have been stopped because that means it can't happen again and, and it's a really flawed way of thinking and i'm sure we'll talk more about this but i i talk a lot about the destructiveness of blame in our culture and and why it is not leadership and why it doesn't solve anything
0: interesting so people here help uh on the podcast write some questions and you know in your opinion and i think you just answered it but could anything have been done Um, in hindsight, even like you can't profile. I mean, you still can't really profile. Um, I'm sure there's ways around it, but I mean, after thinking about it for 19 years, reading the commission report, I mean, do you think anything could have been done to stop the 9-11 attacks?
1: No, I don't. I, I really, truly don't by anyone. And I know people try to um, now blame the CIA and the FBI and all the other agencies. But, you know, it's it, no one's omniscient. So, you know, the people that had them in flight school and were concerned about them weren't talking to the people over here that saw them, you know, Flying on the planes cross country a few times and wondered, you know, all those little pieces. Um, no one's omniscient, and no one could have put those together ahead so of. So
0: I completely forgot that these guys took American flight lessons. They did, and and has that uh, can I mean is that regulated now? Who can get flight lessons, and and they're all being vetted before they can take a plane out.
1: I actually don't know. I don't know the
0: answer. I don't, I don't know that either. And I have friends who are pilots and I've never asked that. But that's interesting because we see fl- small planes flying all the time, right? I mean, are, are somebody watching who's flying. So let's talk about your book, On My Watch. I mean, was it hard to relive all of this or, or, or was it more of a cathartic process?
1: So I lived it every day and still do in many ways. Um, so it was helpful to put words to the experience first for my own processing of of what happened and and what it was. And then ultimately to try to understand what it might offer to readers um, as an author yourself. You don't write a book for yourself, even if it helps you in some way um, heal, you write it it for readers, you write it for others. Um, So yes, it it helped me process um, and that it's helping others now is incredibly healing.
0: And what, I mean, I want people to go out and, and, and buy this book and they will, but what message, what's the core message that you're trying to get across in your book?
1: Well, beyond the destructiveness of blame, which we've talked a little bit about, it's really about a different way of thinking about resilience. Um, and I thought I was failing at resilience for many years. I felt I was failing at being strong, and so many people had told me, you know, just get over it, put it behind you, slam the door, move on. And I couldn't. And yeah, I was still building a life of raising my two children. I was building a new career. So it wasn't that I was completely shattered and broken forever so what's the what's the real answer to what resilience can look like and how i feel and how i describe it in, on my watch is it's more like a piece of sea glass that's the metaphor i ultimately use because it comes from a bottle that is broken apart over many years in the sand and the salt and the waves and becomes something completely different than what it started as yet still of value broken change forever, still capable of bringing meaning and joy to others. And that's how I think of resilience, that you carry your brokenness and your joy with you side by side um, to build a new life.
0: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Um, So what lessons, you know, uh, you say that we can learn uh, about how to better deal with COVID. Uh, with some of the lessons that you've learned in this, looking back at nine eleven, and I don't, I don't really understand what you mean by that.
1: Okay, um, so I do see some similarities, certainly, in people casting blame um, as often as they as they can at the superintendent of their school or their mayor or their governor or the president or anyone for not handling this perfectly, um, and you know, if things had been done differently sooner, et cetera. Things wouldn't be so bad. Um, I just feel that's a real flawed way of thinking about things. But more so, just like on 9 11, our world was turned upside down come February and March um, in this country. And I think that what I learned um, and what helped me thrive and move forward was the compassion and empathy of other people. And I think that that's really the key in overcoming um, the changes in our lives for COVID is we all that saying I've read, which I agree with, we're all in the same, same storm, but a different boat we all are going through something hard now. Um, at whatever level, it could be you've lost a loved one, God forbid, it could be you've lost your job, it could be you're just afraid and anxious, depressed, but we all are going through something and showing compassion and empathy to each other, helping each other, I think is you know the only silver lining, perhaps, that that, that will come of this.
0: That's a great message. Great message, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, you're you're an inspiration for anyone trying to fight back from adversity. Do you have any final thoughts for our audience?
1: Yes, Um, maybe more for your women listeners. Um, As a mom of an 18 year old daughter um, who's grown up in this era of change and transformation and fear, um, be your own hero. Don't wait for someone else to save you. Stand up and save yourself, and offer whatever you can, whatever wisdom you might glean from your experiences to others.
0: I have an 18 year old daughter and I've heard her say, I am my own hero. That is really interesting that you said that, um, 18 year olds are fantastic, aren't they?
1: Oh, most of the time. (laughs) Most of the
0: time. Well, we'll talk offline about that, but, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, on my watch, uh, available wherever you can find books these days. Um, Ours are being sold mostly on Amazon. Um, But thank you so much for Virginia Buckingham for being with us. I look forward to reading your book and uh, thanks for writing it.
1: Thanks so much. Have a great day.
0: You too. Well, thank you for watching open mic with Virginia Buckingham, the person in charge of Logan international airport. On 9 11 in 2000, uh, 2001, 19 years ago, you know, just reliving it with her, I'm telling you, I got chills, I got sad. Uh, I was welling up with tears and feelings just reliving 9 11. Um, the fact that she was in charge uh, on that day where two of her planes went into the town, went into the uh, towers in, in uh, the World Trade Center. I'm a, little, I'm a little off because of that interview. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. I think her message is, is great. Um, I look forward to reading her book on my watch. If you think anybody would benefit from hearing or listening to this episode or watching this episode, please forward it, share with somebody, like it, comment, and please subscribe to our channels. And thanks for watching and listening to Open Mic.